0: Hi, this is your host Ariel. Get hyped. You're tuned in to the first episode in a three-part series examining climate change's impact on our national parks. Every episode features a different expert, each with a unique perspective on what climate change means for our green spaces and how we can best adapt. These gripping conversations filter the issues at hand through three different lenses. Climate change in our parks from a social communications viewpoint, a scientific viewpoint, and a historical viewpoint. This diverse set of leading experts from inside and out of the National Park Service will give us a raw and honest view of the work being done both behind the scenes and on the front lines of the battle against our shifting climate. Each specialist is different in their own way, but common themes took root in all three conversations. Their responses are candid and heartfelt. The following perspectives will surprise you, unsettle you, and give you hope. These interviews permanently altered the lens through which I view climate change's impact on our national parks. Ready? You better be. First up is Mr. Larry Perez, who works on the science communications front for the National Park Service. He'll speak about the importance of accessible climate change information, what climate change means for our parks, and how the National Park Service is adapting. He is on the forefront of the National Park Service's climate change education and interpretation programs.
1: My name is Larry Perez, and I work for the National Park Service Climate Change Response Program, and we're a fairly small team that's mostly located out in Colorado, but we're part of the Washington office, and our job is to really help advance Some of the goals and objectives that we have in the National Park Service Climate Change Response Strategy.
0: So can you explain a little bit about the strategy? What does it entail? Because that's a huge goal, obviously, to respond to climate change in every national park. So how does that work?
1: Yeah, totally. So the strategy was developed in 2010. It's now uh, 11 years old. And... It was developed as a sort of blueprint for how the National Park Service would go about tackling such an overwhelming and omnipresent issue. And we really organized the idea of how the National Park Service would respond around four sort of pillars of action. One is the science, right? We need to know what's happening in parks and science both gives us that information and points us in the direction of potential solutions. So we invest heavily in science. We also invest heavily in mitigation across the park service. And in the park service, our our definition of mitigation is lessening our own contribution to the root cause of the problem, making our operations as green as possible, as sustainable as possible, and reducing our carbon footprint as much as possible so that we not only, again, cut emissions as the root cause of the problem, but also serve as an example of, of what can be done on grand scales. Um, So science, mitigation, adaptation is our third pillar. Uh, We know that no matter what we do today, a certain amount of change is already baked into the atmosphere. A certain amount of change is coming to our parks and is happening now in real time to our parks. And so we've got to be a little bit agile. We've got to be a little bit light-footed and able to adapt to that change as it rolls out. So we've tackled three of the four pillars. The fourth pillar is the one that I primarily work in, and that's communication. We've known since day one that We hold these parks in trust for the American people, and anything we do in parks to respond to climate change has got to be with the involvement and support of people. So we talk openly and transparently about the issue as best we can among our audiences.
0: Yeah, so what kinds of strategies do you use um, for communication? How do you make this information accessible to a broad group of people, and are there different sorts of strategies that you use for like children versus families versus young adults
1: and that's a great question Ariel. yes uh and we'll try to (laughs) say this in a very simplified manner the national park service is pretty unique among all the different federal agencies that manage land right so there's the park service there's the fish and wildlife service there's the bureau of land management there's the u.s forest service Of all the different federal land management agencies, the National Park Service is the agency that has the largest group of folks that are employed in a communications function. We obviously have the park rangers you see when you visit parks that are on trails. We have public information officers in many parks. We have K through 12 curriculum educators that is, you know, you mentioned they work directly with students in the field. In some parks, we have science communications personnel. In many parks, we have visual information specialists. There is the ones that are creating the exhibits, the outdoor panels, the waysides that you see when you visit parks. So we have this really army within our workforce that's dedicated to talking about a variety of issues. The way we go about uh, talking about climate change is multi-pronged and works through that army of folks. So we do a lot of workforce training to try and work with, for example, our our park rangers that are in the field so that when you're in a place like Yosemite, when you're in a place like Kenai Fjord, when you're in a place like Everglades, and you're on a tour, those interpreters understand how to bring about and talk about climate change topics for folks visiting in the parks. We work with our information specialists, our visual information specialists to talk about, well, how can we... Uh, take some of this climate change knowledge that we have, and work it into our visitor center exhibits. How can we work it into our waysides? How can we work it into the park website? And every park maintains a different website, and it's an excellent place to share some of this information broadly among audiences. And as as you noted again, you know parks are huge outdoor classrooms and living laboratories, and we have so many students that visit them with their teachers as part of their curriculum. Well, we know that in Many states, uh, you know, fourth graders. when we start talking about earth system science and climate's a big part of that. So is there a place to take a park and use it as a showcase for what climate is doing at that park at any point in time and what the drivers are of that change? So we use any and all strategy that we can to hit as many audiences as we can.
0: And speaking of kids and teachers in parks, can you talk a little bit about how you're involved with the Every Kid in a Park program and the Climate Change Academy?
1: Yeah, that was, that was kind of our baby. Uh, so the Climate Change Response Program that I work for, we put a tremendous amount of money into uh, hosting a series of academies in different parks every year. And the idea was to target a variety of parks across the country. We did it at Cape Cod, we did it at Indiana Dunes, we did it at Sequoia, King's Canyon. And we worked with the local park staff there, as well as the third-party organization of barriers here at Fort Collins, to bring and invite traditionally underrepresented uh, communities into the park of students. And it was, I don't know if you've seen any of the videos that have have been uh, produced to sort of chronicle that. It was an amazing experience on many different levels. Um, In some cases, these were parks that were in the students' backyards, but for a variety of reasons, they just never had had an occasion to get out and actually see them. And watching their transformation after two nights, three days camping in the park was amazing. I think that is is an opportunity to be a life-changing experience, I think, for many of those students. But more importantly, through some of the assessment work that we did, we know that their understanding and appreciation of not only the facts about climate change, but the importance of it to them personally, really ratcheted up over the course of just that short experience at a park.
0: I think that's fantastic and um, as you know I'm really interested in equitable access to parks and trying to um, kind of diversify who has access to these different parks so I think it's fantastic that your program is honing in on that. Um, I'm kind of wondering how you combat misinformation surrounding climate change.
1: Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, frankly. You know, the National Park Service, by law, has an obligation to utilize best available science as an input into its management decision-making, right? And so what we know about the reality and causality of climate change, there's scientific consensus, it's indisputable. We know that climate change is real, We know that it's happening. We know that it's happening now. We know that we're seeing effects from the Arctic tundra all the way down to the lowlands of the Florida Everglades in our parks. And we know that it is primarily driven by human forces. It's human-caused modern climate change. Park Service is very open and transparent about that. And that is the starting point of our conversation. Our job in parks is to utilize that information that we have and again, use it to inform our decision-making. Our job is not necessarily to defend sites, right? So when you ask about how we combat misinformation, certainly if we're on a trail with with visitors and there's some question, sometimes our, our park rangers will step back. And you know, if, if a point of contention comes up in a program and someone says, Well, climate change isn't really happening, it's always happened. Well, we can we can talk about myth bust a little bit, but sometimes, honestly, it's it's not really our job to do so. And I would say There is a very small percentage of our visitation, a very small percentage of the American audience that is openly dismissive about climate change. And the National Park Service isn't necessarily working hard to convert anybody's opinion or mindset. Instead, we're putting our energy into working with the people that already understand that climate change is a thing, and it's important, and they're ready to work with us on solutions.
0: Yeah, that's a a really fascinating perspective that I haven't heard a lot, and I think that's really interesting. Um, I know that there's been some debate surrounding um, these two ideas of conservation versus preservation um, in terms of national parks. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that in terms of the National Park Service
1: and climate change? Yeah, gosh, Ariel, that's such a great question. Thank you. Yeah, we're grappling with this dichotomy like right now. So the National Park Service has always kind of been, I think, viewed as a preservationist organization, meaning that our job primarily should be to, shall we say, preserve parks in a point in time, right? For a long time, one of our key management documents dating all the way back to the 50s, basically spelled out that our job in the Park Service was to preserve parks as vignettes of primitive America. That's to say that the parks were supposed to basically look today as they did back then. This famous guy, Heraclides, once said, "You know, the only constant in life is change. That's true of parks too. Parks are in a constant state of flux, but what's interesting now in this new reality, we find ourselves, is that climate change is driving conditions unidirectionally in one way, and that's temperatures are increasing in a linear fashion. And as I mentioned, a certain amount of that change is already baked into the eco into the atmosphere for the foreseeable future. And as that linear change happens, our ecosystems are responding. And there's in some cases, and this is important to state, so climate change is affecting. We have 426 units. Climate change is an omnipresent factor on all of them, but the way that it manifests in those parks is greatly different, and it's to different degrees, depending on where those parks are and what their resources are. In many parks, the linear change that we're seeing is going to bring about some pretty significant ecosystem transformations. And so, in many parks, it's going to become increasingly more difficult. Things about, think about places like Glacier National Park. This is true in places like Joshua Tree, maybe Saguaro National Park, and longer timescales, maybe even Everglades, where the parks are going to look vastly different tomorrow than they do today. And so, our shift sort of our focus kind of shifts from preservation, point in time preservation, to a single historical state to becoming more of a conservation mandate of how can we accommodate, how can we direct, how can we resist the change when it's appropriate, but still preserve some of the key values and fundamental significances of the park. That was a really long-winded answer, but I hope that kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I've heard that parks are facing this issue where they have to kind of decide which parks to save, which is obviously heart-wrenching, but there's sort of this term like triaging Park. So, I mean, how, is that like dramatized or is that actually happening where people like you, or maybe not you specifically, but people in the National Park Service have to decide which parks have to be let go?
1: Yeah. So parks themselves are sort of congressionally designated spots on a map with borders around them, right? The parks themselves, we're not picking and choosing between parks. But what's in the parks, right, is what we're trying to prioritize. We're trying to figure out, look, years ago we moved the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, quarter mile inland, to prevent uh, damage from erosion from occurring to the lighthouse. That was extremely labor intensive. That was extremely expensive project. Worth it though, I think, for the folks on Cape Hatteras that saw that lighthouse as an icon. Now, up and down the eastern seaboard, we've got lighthouses that are increasingly becoming imperiled in due to things like sea level rise, storm surge, et cetera. We likely do not have all the money necessary to move all of those lighthouses when conditions merit. And so, what we're grappling with in the Park Service right now is figuring out how we properly take stock of the level of risk happening across all those different, for example, lighthouses, forts, historic properties. And then the hard question is, how do you prioritize between them for funding? And what is our range of options for how we can do the best we can with the resources that we have? And you're right, it's it's a tough decision, and it's one that we as the Park Service can't make by ourselves. Again, we hold these places in trust. So part of the reason why we're so bully about communicating about this topic is that we really need public understanding and involvement to help us make these really tough choices. Mm-hmm.
0: so your job is communications as a professional but I'm curious is there any way that the average citizen can participate in communicating about climate change in national parks
1: Wow, that's a good question Ariel I don't honestly know the answer to that I will say there's a couple things that come to mind many parks have what are called artist in residence programs. They're programs that facilitate um, having artists across all different media, filmmakers, sculptors, painters, poets, actually take up residence in a park for a measure of time, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. During that time, they really get to know that place and the issues around that place really well. And then they're encouraged to generate art that speaks to that in some way, shape, or form in their given media. A number of parks across the country have hosted artists in in residence programs and hosted artists that focused exclusively on this topic of climate change. And uh, that, I think, is a very real way that uh, a certain segment, at least, of the American public can interact with parks to really make a difference. Because, as you probably figured out uh, in some of your podcasting work, and I would argue that Podcasting and the creation of this media is an art in and of itself. It, it speaks volumes compared to a uh, very dry scientific paper that gets pushed out and only a handful of folks read.
0: So, is that part of what you do? Is convert these dry, inaccessible scientific papers into stuff that's accessible and interesting?
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. We we do have we do <laughs> our team does crank out a lot of dry papers. I will tell you that. And we have a small team of communicators that do exactly that. We take that one paper, we digest it down into multiple different levels that hopefully suit a variety of different audiences. And part of that workflow is working with the media, folks like yourself, that are storytellers that do get the word out so that, uh, you know, when new information becomes available, we can hopefully elicit some interest and and make it a little more accessible for the broader American public.
0: Mm -hmm. And when you guys are making these sort of dense, long, um, expansive, like plans for such a huge goal as combating climate change. Where do you even start? How do you even know where to begin?
1: You know, it's, it's not that intuitive. Um, you've probably heard the expression, we're building the bicycle as we ride it. That's kind of the situation. Um, You know the climate change response program that I work for is only about 10 years old. The climate change response strategy that I mentioned is 11 years old and both of them are pretty young. So I think we're still learning every day and that is the reason why this group keeps pushing out and the Park Service just keeps pushing out lots of new science because we're learning. Well, A, we're seeing new things happening on the landscape all the time that we didn't know about before But as we start to grapple with that, respond to it, we're learning new lessons and having new ideas that we didn't have before. So, you know, if I was going to answer your question in in one word, it would be incremental. We put these plans together piece by piece, and then we revise as we go along.
0: What do you think the future of our parks looks like, both in terms of if we manage to carry out these plans, which are admittedly kind of ambitious and also, I mean, what could happen to our parks if if we don't meet these goals?
1: I think personally, and uh, I'm speaking from about 22 years working in parks, I think the parks are going to change in some fashion, um, irrespective of what we're able to accomplish on the ground. In other words, I think all of us should be ready to have parks uh, look a little different tomorrow than they necessarily do today. Um, Let me temper that a little bit by saying the parks that you're visiting now in the present already look way different than they probably did 100 years ago, right? That reality gives me some hope. And that's that when successive generations, when your generation visits parks for the first time that I perhaps visited 20 or 25 years ago, yes, they will be different. They will have changed. But through your eyes... If we fulfill our primary mission through your eyes, those parks will still be areas, areas of tremendous value and inspiration. And I didn't tell you this, Ariel, but I spent most of my career before coming out here to Colorado. I worked in South Florida and I worked in the parks down there. And primarily in two parks, Everglades National Park and Biscayne National Park, two true gems of the park service. I don't know if you've ever been down there, but Everglades is about... Forty minutes from Biscayne, Everglades National Park. I think most folks know very well. is southern tip of Florida. It's a very large, flat sawgrass prairie. Biscayne's a little bit different. Biscayne is ninety five percent underwater. It actually protects the northernmost extent of the coral reef tract in South Florida. You know. Me, I worry that, yes, in time, we'll start to see some incursion of the ocean into the Everglades. And what is now Sawgrass Prairie will, and probably right now, is actively transforming into open water communities and embayments. Someday, in the future, Everglades may be underwater. To your earlier question, you know, what does that mean for how the park is appreciated? Well... We have a corollary forty minutes away. Biscayne National Park is also underwater, but we see it currently right now as an impressive area. So the parks are gonna change, but if we're doing our mission and fulfilling our mission properly, they will still be really important conservation areas, incredible places to recreate, and there will still be tremendous areas for inspiration.
0: My last question is more of a personal one, but I'm just wondering because To be completely honest, I think your job is so cool and fascinating, and it's definitely something I'd like to possibly pursue when I'm an adult. So what was your career path, and how did you get to have this awesome job that combines communications and science and climate change and outdoors and parks? Those are, like, all of my favorite things in the world.
1: Dude, that you think this job is cool tells me you are ready for this job. Uh, Yeah, it's... It's really, it's interesting. So I grew up in South Florida, uh, born and raised. And uh, I was one of those people that never ventured out of the suburbs. I never saw Everglades. I never saw Biscayne in my childhood. And I went to college in Florida National University, right there in Miami. And I started to be an architect. And I found out within my first two semesters that my numbers didn't get along with me as much as they needed to urge truly be an architect. So I went through, I finished the rest of my coursework, and in sophomore year, at the end of sophomore year, I had to declare a major in a not, area. I like through the, the catalog of programs, and there was something in there called Park and Recreation Management. And I looked at it, and I went, how hard can that be? And I declared it. And uh, my first course towards Park and Recreation Management was something called Ecology of South Florida, and there was a lab component to it, and the lab component took me out to places like Big Cypress National Reserve and Everglades National Park, Biscayne National Park, places that just blew me away at 20. I had never been there in my two decades in South Florida. Um, that's why I'm kind of really inspired by the kg 12 work that happens here. Um, I knew the second I saw those places that I wanted to make it a career, and so I finished my undergraduate degree in park recreation management and immediately started working for the local park system in South Florida and then transitioned a few years later into the national park system, where, again, I worked at Biscayne first for a year, and then I spent 15 years working in Everglades National Park in all sorts of different capacities of communication. I was the guy behind the visitor center for a few years. I was the guy on the trail for a few years. I was the guy in front of the fourth graders for about six years, and then I went into science communications, and during that time, I went back to school and got a master's in uh, conservation biology. And then um, during that time... My career in Everglades was hijacked primarily by two issues. One was the Burmese pythons that are all over the South Florida landscape right now. And the other was climate change because they were hot topics. And I was talking about them all the time. And in talking about climate change, I started interacting with this really young team that had just formed up in Colorado called the Climate Change Response Program. Got to know them pretty well. And when the opportunity came available to to get involved with them, I left at the chance, picked up after four years of living in South Florida, made the move out to Colorado, and this team is phenomenal and really leading the charge. I will say this, in all the capacities I've worked, people in the Park Service have had a whole bunch of different paths to get where they are. And I think the path is a little less important than the passion and commitment. And so it sounds like you've got the passion and commitment, Follow the trajectory that works for you, and I promise you, as long as you lead with the passion and commitment, if you truly want like a position like this, it'll be yours sooner than you know.
0: Thank you. That means a lot. And I love to just hear from somebody like you, because that is really one of my dream jobs, I think. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add, any particular important message that you think people should know about climate change in our national parks?
1: Yeah, I I guess a couple things. One, I have a very good colleague that works in our program, Dr. Patrick Gonzalez. And Patrick is really fond of saying that, you know, we're in the situation that we are in climate change thanks to a billion small choices. And a billion small choices will get us back out. So um, people should not feel that this is an impossible task. It is very much solvable. It's a human issue and it has a human solution. So every choice you make makes a difference not only for you, and for our parks and our planet.
0: Thank you so much for speaking to me. This has been so helpful. Thanks for listening to Park Wake Up Call.